not to talk about Ethereum on a Bitcoin podcast, but I think this might actually be worth discussing. Did you see that last week, for a brief period of time, Ethereum transactions stopped finalizing? <laughs> just, you know, not a big deal, right? Just fine. Just fine. Well, whenever something bad happens on Ethereum, we always come out of the woodwork and take some cheap shots. I don't know if it's a cheap shot because I don't think that in the end it was a big issue for most Ethereum users. It looks like it raised fees by about 20% for two one-hour periods last week. The issue is that during these one-hour periods, finality on Ethereum was affected in a way that made exchanges and ZK roll-up Ethereum layer twos very uncomfortable because there was the potential for withdrawals to happen from those entities that could then be rolled back. And so that was risky for them. But the understanding I have is that proof of stake doesn't really create an immutable blockchain history the same way that proof of work does. Because with proof of work, if you put in the work to generate valid hashes for Bitcoin blocks, there's no way to fake all of that work. Whereas in proof of stake, the network gives you the opportunity to add to the chain. You don't have to do any work there. And so you could theoretically prepare multiple chain histories that stretch back years of every single potential transaction and you faked a bunch and, you know, maybe given yourself more Ethereum or something. And there's no real way for Ethereum nodes to distinguish between the real and the fake state because there's no work embedded in this chain history. And so what they do is to prevent block reorgs like this, they add checkpoints to the chain. And the checkpoint is basically a block height where the nodes all say, okay, the block height at block 10,132,000 is this block with this hash. And that's always in the history. And that kind of locks the chain in another way that's sort of separate from the chain history. That reminds me of like a keyframe in video compression, which isn't an ideal solution and requires more computational overhead, but it's kind of a, a hack a little bit. You can layer it on to provide this key moment in time and say, yes, this is an anchor point. So in video, how does the, what does the keyframe give you? So the, when like, say you're looking at a video playback or you're looking at a video editor, the editor or the playback system needs to know at what rate to play the, the video and where to sync it with the frame rate. And it, it has to have some sort of reference point. In some video file, file formats and, and standards just have it built in. And others, to save space, they only reference it every so many frames. So maybe once every 30 frames, there'll be a keyframe. And then there'll be another 30 frames and a keyframe. Instead of having a keyframe for every frame, it can save on space. The issue is, is that if you've ever noticed when like you're scrubbing around and it's really, really chalky and, ch and chunky and it, it's really just sort of blocky and not moving smoothly through the video, that can be because it's trying to look for those keyframes to figure out where it's at in the file. And it's just not as smooth as a system that just has it embedded all along. So like professional video formats embed that into every frame. I see. And this is why those sort of more professional formats are always more data intensive. One of the reasons, yeah. Interesting. So my takeaway is that with Ethereum, they're dealing with a lot of complexity because their consensus mechanism is necessarily complex because they took away the sort of simplicity and power of proof of work, which is, as far as we can tell, impossible to fake, very difficult to 
subvert. And tied to something that's of real value in the world. Which is why it has these properties. But they added something, proof of stake, which is much more ephemeral, but meshes much better with a financialized concept of the world. Because proof of stake means that if you get this Ethereum cryptocurrency, you can then stake it and create yield. And this is a structure that's very similar to things that investors might put money to in the legacy financial system. So I think it's kind of popular because it resembles those things in some way. To provide that, I guess you could say feature set, you have to have complexity. And it looks like these outages, which were there were two in total, were caused by a bug in Ethereum. So essentially the bug was triggered by a large number of transactions being submitted to the network at the same time. You know, they fix it. It happens again and they issue another fix, but then they have to get that fix out. Everybody just shrugs it off. I guess that's why I wanted to bring it up because if this happened to Bitcoin, it would be on CNBC. It would literally be headline news. If Bitcoin had this issue, even for 30 seconds, but Ethereum has it twice in a week and they have to push out software fixes to resolve the problem. And I bet most people listening to this podcast didn't even hear it happen. Well, it's interesting because from the explanation I heard, what happened was there are multiple Ethereum clients. I know one is called Prism. I think one is called Lighthouse, maybe. And one of these clients, what it does is if the node disconnects from the network, and this can, I think, happen quite easily with Ethereum because their current block time is 12 seconds between blocks. So the faster your network throughput, the easy it is to have a second or two hiccup. You have a few drop packets and you basically, the thing just is going to assume it's no longer communicating because 12 seconds, that goes by quick sometimes. And one of these client implementations, when it reconnects to the Ethereum network after an outage, it's searching for like checkpoint finality data. But when it makes that request, nodes that receive that request need to rebuild part of the chain state. And because the Ethereum chain state is, I think, several hundred gigabytes, rebuilding it is very computationally expensive. And so these industrial servers with 3264 CPU threads are just temporarily getting slammed. And this disrupts other functions, including generating these finality checkpoints in Ethereum. So this is actually a DDoS attack. And this demonstrates that it is very difficult to prevent DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks on open networks like these, because you can actually trigger them by accident, not even being malicious. And especially when you have limited nodes, right? It's one thing when you have 20,000 nodes out there roughly, and it's another thing when you've got like 3,000 active nodes. It's so it's a totally different ballgame in terms of the scale of attack, but also when there's complexes there and there's as much going on, seems like it's a lower hanging fruit. And then the other thing that you said in there that strikes me is imagine, you know, how Ethereum is really kind of bet the future on these ZK rollup solutions to solve gas fees and whatnot. But any of these ZK rollup chains, they could just basically get screwed by this entire thing. Because if, if, if it was bad enough, we've seen Ethereum do it before, they'll just roll back. And then what, these side chains are just screwed because the chain would get rolled back to a point where they would no longer match up. Well, that's actually happened because there was a protocol on Ethereum where I think they lost $500 million of Ethereum at some point. And they were sort of saying, hey, you guys rolled back for the DAO hack. How about helping us out? 
And no, actually, you guys aren't kind of politically connected enough with Ethereum. But I just want to complain about one more thing, because Ethereum is having these outages. And I'm listening to a Bitcoin podcast I enjoy. And this gentleman describes himself as a Bitcoiner, but he's been working for the Ethereum Foundation for five years, which I'm kind of scratching my head there. Okay, is now explaining how a 51% attack is actually, you know, so easy because you only have to disrupt minor revenues in a short period of time to perform this successful 51% of attack. So the argument is spurious on many levels, and it's odd that I have to listen to this as Ethereum is having this outage at all. I mean, I don't want to sound conspiratorial. At the same time, I almost feel like the Ethereum Foundation was sort of like, oh, okay, let's put some fun out there, you know? Do a little damage control, a little like, yeah, let's uh, look over here. Remember these problems? Yeah, it's funny how you hear these. You hear this. It's not that hard to do a 51% attack. First of all, all you have to do is re-incentivize everybody who's built a business around mining to just kind of shut down for a few weeks. And then once you've accomplished this somehow impossible task, then you could spin up your equipment that you've somehow procured probably for years because it would take years to procure that much equipment and then just turn it on all of a sudden. It'll, it'll take up all the computing power. Job done. It always relies on this model where you can kind of effortlessly rent huge amounts of hash rate at scale on demand. And it also assumes, by the way, that all the other miners out there don't don't have like standby capacity, like that they don't have miners that they can just turn on and increase their capacity as well, which they do. Right. A lot of them turn off stuff when when Bitcoin price goes low, but they could turn it back on. It's sitting there idle. It's just the whole concept is it's like this child's version of how you would attack Bitcoin. And yet it's got to be one of the top like FUD things that propagates is this. Oh, it's not that hard to do a 51 percent attack. Okay, well, then go do it, man. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, May 19th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here rarely in person with me. Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss how Ledger Recovery, Ledger is a hardware wallet, is a terrible idea poorly executed to back up the encrypted seed from a hardware wallet, but we understand where they're coming from. It's a feature for the next billion users of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. The SEC says that Grayscale, the providers of the GBTC Trust, the largest traditional asset holder of Bitcoin, cannot create a Filecoin trust. Gosh, how surprising. And that gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about Filecoin and IPFS and things that are sort of blockchain adjacent, maybe misusing the blockchain structure. Is it a financial scam disguising itself as a technology? We'll get into that. In economics and banking, our favorite BitMEX co-founder, Arthur Hayes, latest blog post, The Denominator, contains a lot of interesting insights about risk in the U.S. banking system, different models or ways of thinking about how the banking system works, and is Jamie Dimon actually a public employee? He's the CEO of J.P. Morgan. <laughs> does he work for the government? I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that. Maybe he does. Also, Europe has its first Bitcoin ETF, which is not available for regular citizens, but for institutional investors. Kind of interesting how Europe is leaping the U.S. on financial innovation. And then 
in Bitcoin education, we're going to keep it light. This is going to be like eating popcorn. Fiat Jaff, the creator of Noster, has a fun little blog post about using space chains and fediments to scale Bitcoin transaction throughput. This was likely inspired by the congestion on chain caused by ordinal inscriptions and BRC20 ship coins. Is ship coin the world we use? Uh, shenanigans. 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 Hey, Farvra, what's that uh, bar you like? Oh, you mean shenanigans? <laughs> and then, of course, you got the feedback in the booths. Don't forget. Sounds like a great episode. I think so. Um, and you know what? We already got my favorite part out of the way, which is making fun of Ethereum. But uh, I suppose we should probably talk about this ledger recovery idea because the entire Bitcoin community lit up on fire overnight. I mean, everywhere you see this being discussed right now, it's like Ledger just committed suicide. And, um, you know, I, I guess we should probably maybe start by explaining what Ledger has offered to the market. And uh, then I think it'll become fairly obvious why a lot of the Bitcoiners out there are upset by it. Ledger, I believe, produces one of the most popular hardware wallets for cryptocurrency. They have a couple of models. I think one is called the Nano and they look like little USB sticks. And I'm not sure if all of them have a screen on them so that you can verify transactions, but some of them do. And just to go a little bit deeper, hardware wallet is a really misleading term because hardware wallet makes you think that this device is kind of an all-in-one Bitcoin wallet, but that's not really what they do. All hardware wallets need a software program that's a Bitcoin wallet running on a computer. But with this hardware wallet, but actually, is it too late to call it a hardware signing device? Have we confused everyone too much by saying hardware wallet five times and then saying hardware signing device? I mean, we could just make it clear that a hardware wallet is essentially just a signing device. We've used the term wallet, but it's a signing device. And I think this is just like Bitcoin mining. Maybe we should have thought more carefully about the term before it was popularized. For terminology purposes, a Bitcoin wallet is a piece of software that connects to a Bitcoin node or backend and can list transactions associated with Bitcoin keys and then generate new transactions and sign them. The problem is having a private key hot in a piece of software in a computer is dangerous because personal computers are general purpose hardware devices, which means they have a massive attack surface. You update your browser, you update your chat client. That new chat client could have malware. When you install software, you access the computer at a deep level. And so if there is malware in that software hidden in there, it now has access to your computer at a deep level. And that's why hot wallets on computers are dangerous. And so hardware signing devices, aka hardware wallets, mitigate this problem because they take the private key and they put them in a specialized hardware device that only connects to the wallet on the computer using a very specific and presumably secure channel. Now, in the case of Ledger, we have to say presumably secure because how does it work? What does their source code look like? I don't know. It's not open source software. So for me, Ledger is a no-go out the gate because it is not open source software. We have no idea what they're doing on that device. And also the reason it's so popular is because it supports almost every single altcoin. And like we've said before, you're not going to have a good product by splitting your attention. How can you focus on security when you're spending most of your engineering power adding the latest, hottest, stinkiest altcoin? Seems too like when you look at these wallet manufacturers, 
a Bitcoin-only wallet manufacturer is a way of thinking for the company. It's a focus. It is a whole inclusive way of thinking that comes down to a lot of the principles that Bitcoiners really care about, like privacy of your keys, not storing information on their cloud server, no KYC. Like there's a lot of things that a Bitcoin focused wallet manufacturer just kind of intrinsically understands about that community's preferences that a company that's focused on making, you know, a a buffet of coin support just isn't really sinking into that culture and understanding what that customer base deeply wants. And I think what happened with Ledger this week reflects that that company's values aren't Bitcoiner values, they're cryptocurrency values. And I think that Ledger does understand their customers to a certain degree, because I think that many cryptocurrency traders, Bitcoiners often call these people DGENs, which is dismissive, but probably accurate. They actually do want to hold Bitcoin, but they also want to hold a lot of speculative altcoins, because the model here is to save in Bitcoin and speculate in all of the altcoins. And so Ledger has catered their product offering for these people, including integrating staking into their Ledger Live software wallet. So that whole ecosystem, from my point of view, is already a mess. And then they add Ledger Recover, their backup service, which takes your private keys and splits them amongst three different companies, Ledger and two other companies, right? If I'm recalling correctly, and um, has a whole KYC process involved while you sign up, which includes your ID, taking a selfie, date of birth, potentially recording a message so they can have your voice for some reason. Then you upload all of this as you sign up. It's $10 per month. It encrypts three shards of your private key into a two of three quorum, but you are not in that quorum. The companies are, but you are not. And I think this kind of explains the motivation for this service. So there's a lot here. One, we have to trust Ledger on what's going on here because this is closed source software. We don't know how it works. We don't know how they've implemented it. But let's just trust them on this. They have a secure element inside all Ledger hardware signing devices, these little USB hardware wallet thingies. And a secure element is a proprietary trip, a proprietary chip that is secret. They're produced by companies who then sell these chips to hardware manufacturers who use them for you know, secure communications devices and Bitcoin hardware wallets, among many other things. And then what this secure element does is it creates a place where you can execute code, but it is hard to observe the execution of this code. And you can also store data there and it's hard to extract this data. So Ledger claims that when you activate Ledger Recovery, it performs a Shamir secret sharding process, which is not a multi-sig, but it takes a single private key. And I think that from what I gather, a Ledger wallet is a single private key that then creates a hierarchical tree of, of child keys that then generate assets. And I guess it does it for multiple cryptocurrency ecosystems. And that's kind of interesting because there actually are theoretically a limited number of child keys you can create from a master public key, but the number is in the billions as far as I can tell. So I don't think anyone's ever hit this limit, but except maybe enterprise wallets like Coinbase's wallet probably would hit this limit. So there's some interesting technical details here, but it takes the private key in the hardware device, it shards it into three parts, it encrypts them, and then it transmits them to three 
companies, Ledger, Onfideo, and I, and I guess there's another one. And then the idea is that you can recover your wallet if you can sort of biometrically verify your identity. So you need your identity documents, you need a scan of your face, you need not your fingerprints because they don't have, I mean, we just don't have... If they could, they would though. <laughs> they could, right? So this is clearly for people who don't trust themselves with a private key. And I completely get that. Maintaining a secret is very different than the model of traditional finance, which is identity-based. So this is clearly adding an identity-based recovery to a secret-based ecosystem. What folks are pointing out online is the way this works, potentially, you're KYCing everything in your wallet, even stuff that maybe you bought without KYC with the way this works. So there's an element of, say you had a nice stack that you got off of RoboSats or you earned or you mined or however you got that that was non-KYC. You put it through the system, you've essentially KYC'd it. And the other thing that is troubling is that with three U.S. companies involved here, the federal government only has to approach one or two of them, I should say, to get your coins. And if we had a system where things were really bad and, you know, price controls were in place and things were really, really nasty down the road and we had some sort of gold reserve act of 1934 again, but it was for crypto assets or all kinds of hard assets, potentially, the U.S. government could just go to these two companies and just remotely take your coins. They wouldn't need your password. They wouldn't need access to your computer. They could just recover all your coins in their data center. And I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but 1934 happened. You are referring, of course, to Roosevelt's executive order 6102 that confiscated all privately held gold in the United States during the 1930s. And after this confiscation was complete, and actually, I don't think that many people surrendered gold that they were holding in their own custody. This was generally directed at companies that were gold repositories, I believe, or banks that held gold on other people's behalf. But after that confiscation was complete, Roosevelt devalued the U.S. dollar. Yeah, by, by like, what was it, 60% at the time or something in that range. And then a year later, they passed the Gold Reserve Act, which officially raised the price of gold from $20 to $35 per ounce. That was when they also devalued the dollar and basically made it made all these restrictions around old owning gold that weren't restricted and, or weren't eased until looks like 1974 from by Ford, who signed legislation that legalized the private ownership of gold coins, bars and certificates. So for 40 years, American gold holders were criminals because holding gold as a private citizen in the United States was illegal. Man, that's hodling. Man, that's conviction right there. If somebody out there, somebody out there's like grandparents hodled through that, I'd love to know about that. The thing is, you don't have to imagine an apocalyptic scenario to find this very concerning, because if you'll recall from, I believe, just one year ago, Ledger was hacked and they lost most of their customer data that included customer names, phone numbers, email addresses, physical addresses. And there were instances of Ledger customers who owned hardware devices getting phone calls from people who were threatening them if they didn't send them cryptocurrency. I don't know if anyone was physically attacked, but that is a possibility because cryptocurrencies are bearer assets. It's digital cash. We don't talk about having huge amounts of cash on our person or in our house because we know it's dangerous. The same is true of cryptocurrency. That's a feature, not a bug, by the way. Yeah, and that's something to consider as value goes up, say, in a, in a while. People will be more and more incentivized to get it. You know, something else that was pointed out is, so this, this backup recover service is $10 a month. It is opt-in. But even if you don't opt-in, 
This means there is technically the capability of extracting information that should be only on the hardware wallet off the hardware wallet via software. And it opens up a just kind of attack surface that you would hope would not even be a possibility with a hardware wallet. It just, even if you don't use the service, the fact that they've had to plumb this capability is bad. And then like dad was just pointing out, if they have any other kind of compromises and their customer list gets out again, this is a really bad situation. And they just should have never opened this can of worms. At the same time, why did they do this? So just to summarize, I don't think anyone should own a Ledger hardware wallet today if your goal is cold storage of your Bitcoin. Because like Chris said, there is the capability to remotely extract private keys from that hardware device. That means the next time you update the Ledger Live wallet software, whether they tell you or not, if you then go ahead and connect your hardware signing device to that software, it could just automatically send your keys into the internet. And that means that you need to trust that everyone at Ledger doesn't want to steal your money and that Ledger is good enough to prevent hackers from compromising this code. So this is just a terrible, terrible idea. And by the way, hackers can decompile the Ledger Live wallet software, create vulnerable copies, and then attempt to compromise Ledger's software supply chain and distribute them. That happened with SolarWinds. That happens all the time. So this is really, really deeply, deeply unsafe, in my opinion. That said, this is clearly a mass market product because I've heard a lot from tech product people who are always talking about the UX around cryptocurrency. I think you're very aware of UX and you think about it deeply. I am less so because I've decided in my heart to not care. (laughs) So when people talk about the whole UX thing, I kind of think, well, UX would be great. At the same time, the whole point is these fundamental properties around security and property rights. So why are we talking about this now? We're at essentially 0% adoption. I don't think that like putting another pretty UX on your wallet is going to increase adoption significantly. I think that the traditional financial system melting down is what drives adoption. So that's just my bias there. At the same time, this is clearly a tool that resembles traditional finance and would be like comfortable to use for maybe older people, maybe the next million adopters who haven't yet bought cryptocurrency, people like that. And it's also software as a service. This is a reoccurring income stream. There's a way to do the uh, shard key thing better. The fact that the user isn't even part of the quorum is wild to me. I don't use it myself, but I think Nunchuck Wallet has really nailed this. And it makes me want to use it. I was just watching an hour-long video by BTC Sessions on their inheritance planning that you can do with no no account required with them, no monthly service. They also do offer like a concierge uh, inheritance planning service, but they basically do a four key setup. And one of the keys is in some cases a platform key, as they put it, or it's just an inheritance key. And so you, you, you need three signing devices. Well, you need two wallets, signing wallets, and a tap signer card from CoinKite. And the tap signer is the inheritance wallet. And you basically create a multi-sig and you could have a, you have a key, your wife has a key, or you and your kids have a key, right? And it lets you build something that if I were to die, Hadia or one of the kids could still get access to the Bitcoin if both Hadia and Dylan signed with their hardware key. That sounds really interesting. It also sounds relatively technical. And so I understand why there's a temptation to turn this into a paid service with regulated companies. Nobody nails the the UI like Nunchuck, though. I mean, that chef's kiss to what they've done over there. I I will eventually try setting it up, but I'm letting them develop it a bit more. 
Should we move on? That was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big topic. It's something we've been talking about around uh, my house recently. So there's a lot to it. And, you know, you want something like the Ledger products because there is a also a spouse approval factor. You know, they they may not be as into it as you are. And so but they you know, like my wife and I, our conversation was is she would like to be able to get access to the Bitcoin if something happened to me. And what I have set up now, she'd have to basically get somebody to help her probably. Right. Cause it's just a little too complicated. Even if we walked through it, if it could be something that she could check frequently and make it more tangible, she'd like that quite a bit. And so I, I do get what Ledger was trying to do here. I understand it. And they were trying to make it so that way you could blow up your computer and you could have, you could never, you, you wouldn't have your seat at all. And you could come to them and say, please, if I log in and identify, here's my, here's my KYC information again, please, will you recover all my crypto? They just hit a button on their end and they send it back down to your client and they're the big heroes. This is a way for your boomer parents to have a cryptocurrency hardware wallet and take self-custody, but you can sleep at night because they're always clicking links online and getting phone calls and allowing people from overseas to download software onto their computer and take control because they have a virus or they need to solve a printer issue or something. So this is who I imagine it's for. I don't think that market exists yet, but I guess that's why they did this. Yeah, that and the day traders, right? The day traders that can then say they're secure. They're, us they're using a hardware wallet. So I feel like this episode has already been a lot of potato chips. We dunked on Ethereum. We dunked on Ledger. And now we're going to dunk on Grayscale and their Filecoin trust application that the SEC has requested that they withdraw. Man, I was going to get on some great Filecoin action too, Dad. It's real disappointing, I have to say. This isn't surprising to me at all. In fact, I was surprised that Grayscale had as many shipcoin trusts to begin with. I didn't realize they had as many as they do, and they were just essentially adding one more, Filecoin. I'm not sure what they're using as a qualifier to figure out what cryptos they should make trusts for, but whoever's making that decision, I think should probably lose their job. It is almost like Grayscale is Ledger, and they just keep on adding ship coins because first they had the Bitcoin investment trust, then they had the Ethereum trust. I think they also have a Zcash trust. Zcash being the privacy cryptocurrency you've never heard of because they created a lot of novel cryptography. They did a lot of research on the ZK rollups that are now so popular on Ethereum, but their ZK setup actually required a ritual, a trusted ritual. And, and there's an incredible, I think, NPR investigation description of a reporter who participated in the ritual and her phone was hacked during the ritual. It's just wild. Edward Snowden has participated in one of these rituals, in fact. So it's fascinating, but it's not something that I think you should put money into. And I guess the SEC asked them not to do this for some of the other trusts they've done as well. Like, this isn't the first time the SEC was like, ah, we think this is a bad idea. And then Grayscale just proceeds anyways. And I think that the SEC is probably not a good faith regulator here. It's not like the SEC is super principled and is like, oh, we need to protect investors and da, 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 da. There's clearly an agenda around discouraging certain activities in the crypto space, but turning a blind eye to others. It's not super clear 
what the motivator is. It seems intensely political. Right now, it seems to be very related to Gary Gensler's career. So who is the head of the SEC? So essentially, the SEC said, hey, Grayscale, can you actually withdraw the application for this trust? Because we're concerned it might be a security. And Grayscale said, it's not a security. But it is because Filecoin was started with an ICO. So initial coin offering literally means you sell to an early batch of investors who are going to be massive token holders. And then additionally, often if you have an ICO, that means you're just created tokens, first of all. And second of all, that means insiders often get access to those tokens and then they do the ICO. And the way the whole Filecoin network works is you pay for storage with these tokens. So if you just get a whole big old bag of Filecoin for cheap at the beginning, you're basically set as long as Filecoin's a thing. So it does sound like a security to me. And I think for me, the issue is if there is an entity that can organize an initial coin offering, well, that kind of sounds like a startup or a company or something. And now it looks like you're selling securities. To me, it sounds like a group of people looking to manage an investment and make sure that it returns a profit. And on that note, Filecoin did for some people, because if you look at the Filecoin chart, they issue it. It's like $4. It kind of dips. It hangs around. It shoots up to like, I don't know what the peak was, $174. It definitely had that kind of ship coin pump and then boom, drops like a stone. It's down at $4 and it's clearly just trending to zero, except probably there are some large bag holders that are you know not selling and therefore like it can't go exactly to zero it definitely has somebody behind it because it just keeps coming up over and over again so uh yeah you were right 125 dollars on march 28th 2021 and it is now hovering at four dollars and fifty cents that's got to be nearly a 99 percent drawdown right yeah it's pretty rough it's basically lost it lost a hundred dollars and 120 (laughs) dollars Ouch. And it has been uh, around that point since uh, May of 20. So it's been there for a year. It's basically almost right at a year. It's been at that price point, just kind of hovering, fluctuating up and down. Now, the reason I grabbed this article was I got confused and we were discussing how understanding Filecoin and also Chia is difficult because there's no money to be made debunking this stuff, but there is money to be made promoting it. And so the internet is full of positive articles about it. You can look at articles called, is this coin a scam? And they're like, no, it looks pretty good. I mean, and you can ask AI. And AI reads those articles and will summarize them for you. Bard told me this morning that Filecoin's a great way to go if I'm looking to store files. But you actually had some experience trying out IPFS, and it sounded like you had some hiccups. Yeah, IPFS is an interesting idea, the interplanetary file system. And the idea is sort of this detached forever storage. I like that idea, but the actual implementations require these public gateways. And these public gateways are often hosted by large companies like Cloudflare, and they just centralize IPFS into these bridges. And then, of course, there's the Filecoin angle. The idea is is that you could allocate storage using the Filecoin network and you buy your storage with the uh, FIL token, which, by the way, is managed by a foundation. So they got a foundation of people behind it. And the foundation released a press release that pushed back against the SEC. 
So, I mean, I just, when I saw the connection to Filecoin and the fact that it seems every review about Filecoin is a paid for review and there's no good technical criticism of it and the obvious ICO behind it and the foundation just made me extremely uncomfortable to the point where we canceled our coverage of IPFS on our Linux Unplugged podcast just because I cannot get a clear picture of Filecoin's details. It seems really shady in a way that like Solana is, right? It's this group of people behind it that are, there are certain machinations are creating outputs and resulting in developments of Filecoin and creating price news. Like if you go look at the Filecoin like newsfeed on Coin Market Cap, it's all like stuff that PR people are putting out to try to pump the price. It feels shady to me. And I could be totally wrong, but you know, in this market, you have to be really, really, really careful. And if they're not transparent on some of these things, and if I can't find a good technical teardown by somebody who's looked at it critically, and all I see are these paid for pieces, red flags all around for me. I like the idea IPFS, not so hot about Filecoin. I actually thought it was Chia for a moment. Chia was a terrible scammy idea, in my opinion, because the idea was proof of work is so bad. So why don't we, instead of burning electricity to do proof of work, take high speed storage devices like NVMe drives and high endurance enterprise flash drives and destroy them to mine coins instead. And Bram created this very complicated way to do like plotting and to turn these drives into essentially kind of fields of random addresses that would then would search around and try and find like a random number. And, you know, it, it essentially simulated proof of work. But instead of having to run electricity through a machine to do hashing, it just destroys high endurance hard drives by spamming them with ma massive amounts of random read writes. And of course, it misses the point entirely that what are hard drives made out of? Energy, melted sand that was melted by coal power, you dummies. Yeah, I, th I think Filecoin does something similar to Chia because it's also proof of storage is its consensus mechanism, which is an area I was specifically trying to get some really good meaty you know, critiques of and, and different angles on and uh, just saw all the, oh, it's so great. It's so great. And so it was so funny when I went to Bard later on to ask Bard about Filecoin. Bard just regurgitated all that crap I'd come across, all this pro crap. Uh, it's totally useless. And I don't like the idea of um, associating a coin with the storage mechanism. I just don't want that system. I'd rather pay sats for storage. Right, because the whole concept is that we're going to use a different type of money for every different application in our life. It's, it's crazy. It's a world built on laundry tokens. So I'm going to have tokens for my laundry machine, tokens for my file storage, tokens for my food delivery. Yeah, everything. Everything's a token. This was clearly disproven in the 2017 crypto bubble. That was the idea. We're going to have a token for everything and the tokens pumped and dumped and they never came back. So somehow things like Filecoin and they, they keep on limping on. So um, there's also a article we linked to from Fiat Jaff, who we're going to come to later in the episode, who talks about how IPFS just you know doesn't really work because it's built around a poor assumption of networking and it's kind of just poorly designed. So check it out if you want some more schadenfreude critique. It's hard because I think a lot of us would love IPFS to be this sort of decentralized storage solution that is, you know, an alternative to cloud storage. But I found it to be tedious, slow and unreliable unless you went through a public route. And then, of course, you're centralizing. Yeah, maybe one day I'll just save all my files in the blockchain. 
using ordinal inscriptions? Obviously, obviously. I listened to the last episode and uh, I took my notes and yeah, you know, marriage certificates, uh, real estate certificates, car licenses, all that. I'm just going to inscribe it all on the blockchain. Now, it took me a while to get to Arthur Hayes' latest blog post, The Denominator, but I heard it mentioned on another podcast that debunked the blog post immediately because Arthur talks about how there's a strict rule of how he parties in a club. And another podcast host, who I won't mention, said that he was partying with Arthur and this rule was not followed. Oh, really? Okay. Girls don't pay is one of the rules. Is that what it is? And he had a girl pay? I mean, what is the... Uh... Arthur did not chip in, even though he had some drinks from a, an expensive bottle of something in a club. And he got called out for it on a pod. How embarrassing. Well, you know what else is embarrassing? Kyle Davies of Three Arrows Capital owes Arthur $6 million. Man, could you, can you imagine having those problems? Yeah, the Three Arrows Capital guy owes me $6 mil. He would have uh, paid me, but uh, Celsius collapsed, Voyager collapsed, Luna collapsed. So he's just kind of having a rough year. Now, the subject of the denominator is the current and future problems in the U.S. banking system. And what Arthur proposes is the U.S. has to decide what kind of a banking system you want. There are sort of two options. You can have a nationalized banking system made up of too big to fail institutions. And the drawback here, which we've discussed in previous episodes, is that this is not a banking system that lends into the real economy, that wants to do business with small and medium-sized entities. Here's a little Economics 101. Where does growth come from in an economy? It comes from small and medium-sized entities. And there's an intuition here, which is a large company cannot double in size. If Amazon doubled in size twice, it would consume the entire U.S. economy. So it just physically cannot grow like that. And so there's actually kind of a natural life cycle to companies. They start small, they grow big, they usually stay that size for a while, they stagnate, and then eventually they fall apart and they are broken up or bought by a competitor or something. And this is sort of like the law of the jungle. It's a natural cycle, basically. There's another way of calling this creative destruction. And bank lending is a part of this cycle. And if we want to look at kind of in the past 20 years, business ecosystems that had like a healthy natural cycle, Germany is a great example because Germany is quite famous for having a large number of small and medium sized companies that are quite dynamic, often trade internationally, often with China. That's an important detail, which sort of tempers the story a little. And part of Germany's success has been having large numbers of local banks that lend into a local economy. The U.S. has been losing that banking dynamism ever since 2008 and the consolidation of the banking system when banks like Wells Fargo consumed Wachovia. WAMU collapsed. Over the past 10 years, the number of banks in the United States has contracted and banks on the whole have gotten larger. And what Arthur points out is that this is actually a model that's very similar to how banking works in China. China is a country dominated by massive state-owned banks, and they allocate capital based on political considerations. And this has resulted in a very unequal society with perhaps even more billionaires than live in the United States are in China. And they are often created through inside political machinations that fund their projects 
and give them undue profits and opportunities that are not available for the common Chinese citizen. And so it is uncomfortable for the United States or people who live here who think that this is a freer, more fair social model to see that actually the trend in American banking is towards this centralized banking model where banks become essentially part of the government through an implicit government backstop. And this is this is a fact. What we saw in the past several months with the collapse of three banks, two related to crypto, is that deposits fled from these smaller regional banks that do not have a too-big-to-fail U.S. government guarantee, and then they ran in to large too-big-to-fail banks like J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. And these larger banks were requested by the government to support smaller banks, but they would not actually step in until they were guaranteed profits by the FDIC, for instance, negotiating the sale of First Republic to J.P. Morgan. And when J.P. Morgan made that sale, because the price of First Republic's assets was so discounted, they realized a $2 billion profit the moment the ink was signed on the deal. So what is that? That is socializing risk and privatizing profits. And so frankly, in my opinion, it would be a much more open, transparent, and honest approach to U.S. banking to just nationalize J.P. Morgan and the largest banks. I think that Jamie Dimon is the greatest hypocrite who should never be listened to and should honestly be mocked because he cosplays as this sort of winner of capitalism. But he is actually a government employee who has government job security but gets to keep all the profits. And when First Republic was going under, he gets a phone call from the FDIC. It's not even like work for them because they're so big now and there's nowhere else to go. The FDIC or whoever calls up JP Morgan and says, we need you to do this purchase. How can we make this happen? They're in a desperate position. And to focus on the importance of size in terms of companies and banks, you have to understand that 54% of U.S. firms have less than 500 employees. That means that more than half of the U.S. labor force is in smaller companies that rely on smaller banks. As you centralize the banking system into larger banks, these people will lose their job because companies need credit to maintain operations, to expand, to make necessary investments in their capital stock. And we can see that smaller U.S. banks, which as a percentage of total assets are smaller than the four largest banks, they provide 70% of the commercial real estate loans in the U.S., 55% of all real estate loans, which I guess includes mortgages, and over 30% of commercial and industrial loans. They're punching above their weight in terms of actually supporting economic activity in the real economy. And so as smaller banks are absorbed into larger banks, the economy centralizes, real economic activity falls, and we end up with a more financialized economy. There are a lot of other complexities with how the Fed and Treasury and FDIC is sort of trying to prevent smaller banks from going under, but they are somewhat politically constrained because what they really need to do is issue a blanket government guarantee of all deposits in all U.S. banks. This is politically difficult because it's seen as a bailout to the bankers, and it is. 
That said, right now, there is sort of a deposit guarantee, but the problem is that to get this deposit guarantee, you have to go, the bank has to go bust, and all the shareholders have to be wiped out. Well, banks actually need shareholders because if shareholders sell the bank stock and the bank's stock drops below its capital requirements, then legally the bank doesn't have enough skin in the game relative to its assets under management. And now it has to either raise new capital or essentially wind down operations. And if they announced they were raising capital, the market would panic. That's exactly what happened in the last three bank failures. So we're in a rough situation. And what is the ideal outcome? In my view, the ideal outcome is a resilient financial system where banks do regularly go bankrupt. And there is some form of deposit insurance that you know doesn't make people too paranoid about banking and doesn't necessarily create a deflationary monetary environment like the, the Great Depression. But the thing is, we can't get to that state without systemic contagion because currently banks are full of underperforming loans and underperforming government bonds that were caused by 10 years of negative real interest rates. So this is a systemic problem that the Fed has created through reckless and experimental low interest rate monetary policy that was encouraged by the dysfunction of the U.S. government over the last 10 years that was unable to create an industrial policy and a financial policy that was reasonable and protected the interests of society as a whole. And instead, it enriched people like Jamie Dimon, who get government bailouts, but no government profit sharing. And it created a situation where the U.S. banking system is fundamentally fragile. And this is a metaphor for the entire world, because I am quite certain that almost every other banking system in developed countries has similar dynamics. And of course, this 13 years of low interest rates has created wild financial speculation in all businesses, but it's now come to an end with the most rapid rate hike we've seen. And so there's a shockwave from that. And that's also adding the instability. It's not just that the rates were down and went up, but it's also the rate that they have now gone up at, which is uh, made some of those traditionally safe bets not so safe. And since this is Arthur, this turns into trading ideas. So what's his end game? It boils down to one question. How do U.S. policymakers prevent all small banks from going bankrupt? Is he overstating the severity of the situation? Probably a little, but I think generally he's directionally right. And there are sort of two options in Arthur's view, and I kind of agree with him. I think there are also messy, political, slower options, but, you know, they're not worth talking about. It could be anything in that case. The first option is the Fed cuts interest rates dramatically below the 2 to 3% range. And what that would do is that would now give banks a portfolio that is not negative because all of their low interest rate loans from the past two to four to six years would be yielding higher than the new benchmark rate, and this would rejuvenate their balance sheets. The other option is the BTFP program, the Buy the Effing Pivot program, which allowed banks to give certain collateral to the Fed in exchange for loans with a manageable interest rate. The problem with that program is that most small banks do not have collateral that is eligible. And so if that program were changed to make all bank collateral eligible for it, that would also provide enough liquidity to possibly prevent most small to medium-sized banks 
from suffering bankrupts and going insolvent in the next year. But it doesn't seem like they're interested in doing that. Why wouldn't they have designed it that way from the very beginning? It seems like every decision that has been made has led to more centralization in the banking sector and has led to more and more pressure on the small banks. They're not actively making decisions to make the situation better for small banks, number one. And number two, everything we're still seeing, even as of this morning, when I watched Jerome Powell before we recorded, they're still signaling they have no intention of lowering rates anytime soon. My sense is that there are a lot of political constraints on this program. And so even though the Fed, Treasury and FDIC are kind of stepping into the vacuum of a dysfunctional Congress that can't kind of pass laws that create structures to solve this problem. Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, is likely getting political pressure screamed at by congressmen and senators about the BTFP program and how it looks like the U.S. government is bailing out failed banks, bailing out bankers. You know, this makes voters crazy. So I think there are a lot of constraints on a kind of rational response. Well, what's the trade here? Arthur says, gold and Bitcoin, baby, because you cut interest rates, risk assets, pump. You change the BTFP program so any collateral can be posted. That's an increase in market liquidity, risk assets, pump. So his trade, I guess, is that you get ready for the pivot, essentially. There has to be a pivot. And I guess he can survive the volatility and down market until then is perhaps his strategy. He says you can't lose. He says you can't lose owning gold and Bitcoin. Uh, He says, unless you believe the political elite is willing to stomach a complete failure of the banking system. And I think, you know, he might be right. In a weird way, you can almost bet on politicians being incentivized towards their short term goals and just continuing to make decisions that are going to compound the problem here. The thing is, like, if you blow up the system, how is there any money to buy gold and Bitcoin? Like, I don't quite understand. Like, if everybody, if we go into some deep recession, there's no money to throw around at these things. There's still a lot of financial wealth that is going to flow to where it thinks it'll be treated the best. And so the trade is always getting ahead of these large flows that tend to panic into the assets that you think will solve their problem in the near future. Yeah, the uh, the middle class may feel a little restricted and tight, but the rich, they still have their money. They're just looking for the best place to move it. And one of those places might be a European Bitcoin ETF. Words I was not expecting to say because there has been discussion in Europe about their new comprehensive crypto finance framework. I think it's called Mika. And while this framework establishes a lot of surveillance, a lot of financial reporting, all of the stuff we expect, it seems in some level to be preferable to crypto financial businesses than the U.S., where just by contrast, Mika says you can make a stablecoin. That's not the case in the U.S. There is still an open question whether or not huge companies like Circle can exist in the future. Are they going to be allowed to be a stablecoin, which is a form of bank or money market fund that creates this asset, the stablecoin that is more useful, the less restricted and KYC'd and regulated it is. But now the Jacobi Bitcoin ETF is a spot Bitcoin ETF 
on the Euronext Amsterdam exchange. It has a 1.5% annual management fee, which is only 0.5% lower than the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. But as an ETF, it will track the spot price of Bitcoin very closely, theoretically, whereas the Grayscale Bitcoin ETF trades at a massive discount to the price of Bitcoin today. Yeah, I guess this makes it the largest exchange to host a spot Bitcoin ETF. So that's interesting. And Fidelity will serve as the custodian for the backend cryptocurrency, which I thought was interesting. I wondered how they would do that. And of course, you'd have the exchange, you'd have a well-known, established institution like Fidelity. I, I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately this is how most of the normies in the States are going to interact with Bitcoin one day. And I think that it is probably long-term a good thing that ETFs were not established for Bitcoin sooner because then a larger proportion of Bitcoin would end up in ETFs with regulated custodians. And when it's clear that Bitcoin and a fiat world with fiat politics will be in conflict, those Bitcoins will be confiscated and potentially used to perform some sort of disruptive attack on Bitcoin or or whatnot, potentially. Who knows? Yeah, the more people hold, the better, right? I mean, that's just it, is the delay that has been caused by U.S. government dysfunction has opened up a window of time for more people to stack privately. Also, thanks to their economic policies of uh, the last decade and really the last 40 years, uh, we may be going into historic lows for a once in a lifetime stacking opportunity. And I'm very glad it all didn't get locked up into an ETF before we hit this totally dysfunctional phase that may be a great time to stack sats. I think the last thought there is just that, in a sense, Europe may be under more pressure to create a crypto regulatory framework because they do not control the world reserve currency. There is not global demand for euros. There is not a big amount of euro stablecoins being circulated. The pressure throughout the global economy seems to to be for economies to dollarize. And so getting out ahead of that trend, that seems very responsible politically. The U.S., on the other hand, I think there is a level of complacence, a sense that the U.S. is the world reserve currency, this crypto thing's a joke, nothing's ever going to change. And we think that that is obviously very short-sighted. It's uh, the cycle. You know, the first they laugh at you, right? That whole thing. It is exactly how it works. First, they don't take you seriously. Then they fight you like hell once they start taking you seriously too late. And then you win. And then they capitulate. Um, And you can see that in history over and over again. And most recently, of course, the most famous one is in software with Linux and Microsoft and open source. First, Microsoft ridiculed and laughed at Linux and open source. Then Microsoft fought like hell through the legal system, through their OEM partners, through hardware manufacturers, through licensing, through monopoly practices. They fought like hell to prevent Linux adoption. And then ultimately, it took a decade plus or two. It took their CEO stepping down, two CEOs, Gates and Balmer stepping down. But ultimately, Microsoft embraced Linux and open source, and now they make a ton of money off of it. And uh, they're out there releasing tons of their own products, including very popular products as free software. I have to use a Windows computer at work, and I use Linux on it all day in WSL. Can you believe how good they've made that experience? That w- That is a, not something a Microsoft of a decade would have done. They would have been too afraid to make the experience too appealing. And now... 
they're like, let's make it as good as possible because they're, they've realized that if they embrace open source software development, they can play an important role in the ecosystem for developers and they figured it out. And we may see some sort of trajectory like this with Bitcoin. I think we've definitely entered the they fight you stage. The U.S. government is also ignoring it, laughing at it and fighting at it all at one time because of its size and dysfunction. But we're definitely in the they fight you stage as well. It's clear. This here episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting. Head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and check out one of our mini shows focused on Linux, security, open source, and development. And of course, self-hosting. Episode 97 just went out, tempted by the fruit of another. And uh, I talk about how my note system completely collapsed on me. And Alex tries to make the case as to why I should switch to Obsidian. Plus, I share a suite of tools that you can get up and running on a server that lets you do all kinds of handy things on your LAN. Check it all out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I was actually thinking this week that the difference between me and a good software developer is the good software developer has taken lots and lots of notes and can search them very quickly. Yeah, it is a it is like one of these things that I think I didn't fully appreciate that over my life I would do hours and hours of research on a subject and I would become like an expert on that subject. And then three months later, I would forget it all. I never conceived that I could spend that much time and that much energy and that much focus, like ADD hyper-focused on learning something, becoming like really proficient in it and then forgetting all of it. And I wish I would have known that's how it would be because I could have captured all of that in a note system. So I finally got around to doing it and then that system blew up on me. Clearly, I was hanging around on Fiat Jaff's blog this week because there's also a link to his critique of IPFS. But for this week's Bitcoin education, we're just going to look at his pretty short blog post, which introduces some concepts, space chains and fediment to solve scaling. Obviously, there has been a lot of congestion on the Bitcoin blockchain. The mempool has been quite full of transactions, many of which are related to BRC20 speculative altcoins on Linux and ordinal inscriptions, which many Bitcoiners view as spam or sort of an improper use of the blockchain. Check out episode 79, I think, with Brandon Black, who offers an alternative explanation of what's going on. It was a great conversation. I found it extremely educational. Really helped me kind of put all these different terms, inscriptions and ordinals and uh, all of it, just kind of what is what are all these different things? What's a BRC20? Like, where did all this come from? Just getting all that background and kind of I came up to it, I think, a more comfortable piece with it all. But the one thing it definitely does, and we've seen this times before in Bitcoin's history, is it creates pressure on the blockchain. Man, I had my mempool up. Boy, that's been exciting to watch. I never really thought I'd say that, but mempool has actually been exciting to watch recently. And it sort of died down now, but it created a conversation around what the hell are we going to do about these on-chain fees? And some people, they went over the top and talked about how we got to make changes. But other places, lots of other places started talking about, well, maybe we should use a layer two. Lightning gets thrown around a lot because that's the most popular right now, but there are other options as well. And whenever the fees get really high and the blockchain gets really congested, you start to see real progress on this stuff. Let's just read through Fiat Jazz proposal. What if instead of trying to create complicated layer two setups involving Novu cryptographic techniques, we just did the following? Okay, what are these layer two setups he's critiquing? One would be the liquid sidechain. Liquid is a block stream project that they say they're just a technical advisor to. It's essentially a multi-sig address on the Bitcoin blockchain 
that then connects to a side chain. So as you depo- if you deposit funds into this multi-sig address, you can reveal parts of that deposit transaction to a liquid node and receive liquid Bitcoin on the liquid sidechain. But the withdrawal is permissioned and only members of the liquid federation can withdraw. That's a security device to prevent, basically remove the incentive to attack the federation members to hack the coins. So these federation members, they create markets to trade liquid Bitcoin for non-liquid Bitcoin. And the liquid sidechain has blocks every one minute. It has essentially 0% adoption. It has additional smart contracting capabilities. The Lightning Slayer Barack built a Uniswap type exchange for liquid assets on liquid. So there's stuff happening on there, but no one seems to care or use it. And I guess Fiat Jaff is saying that that's too complicated. Another layer two solution would be Paul Stork's drive chain proposal, which is super complicated. And I've heard critiques from why do we want this when no one wants liquid to if we built a drive chain, it would be too good and everyone would use it all the time and it would actually hurt Bitcoin security. I can't evaluate either of those statements really. So what does Fiat Jaff think is easier? He suggests that we take the Fediment source code, remove the mint stuff, and just use their Federation stuff secure coins with multisig. I don't know what that means. I think you could just have a Fediment. A Fediment is a custodial wallet where you send Lightning Bitcoin funds in. They all go into the Fediment wallet, which is secured by a multisig. So you could have Fediments run by different parties who might not be willing to collaborate with each other to create some sort of security there. And then inside the Fediment, you have essentially perfectly private Bitcoin transactions. But Fiat Jaff is saying instead of having Fediments that custodially hold Bitcoin and give you private eCash inside, have the Fediment hold Bitcoin with a multi-sig and then make a space chain. Are you familiar with a space chain, Chris? I know we've, I think we've actually brought it up once or twice. Um, and I don't really recall the difference between a space chain and liquid and all of these. All of these start to lose me a little bit. And I, I wonder if I'm not alone. I think the issue with the reasons why liquid didn't get traction and things like that is uh, I get Bitcoin. I like, I, you know, I get it. I don't get liquid or space chains. And I wonder if that's sort of slowed the adoption by some, because I mean, I couldn't even tell you the difference. To me, it all feels a little, I don't know, theoretical. Like it doesn't really seem like, like all of these seem just sort of, well, they could work, but once they get lots of users, they could just have the same problems Lightning's having. I think I've made a terrible mistake and that Fiat Jaff's proposal might be a joke because it's clearly wrong. Oh, okay. In my view. Oh, yeah. Or does he, mis- does he misunderstand something? So my understanding is that the way a space chain works is that you actually destroy Bitcoin, you burn them. And then since you provably destroy the Bitcoin, you create a new token on the space chain. Right. So Bitcoin can never come out of a space chain. Okay, that kind of rings a bell. So it makes no sense to create a multi-sig with Bitcoin and then a space chain because you'd just be destroying all of the multi-sig Bitcoin into the space chain. And so Fiat Jaff's proposal that you then 
somehow have a marketplace to exchange space chain Bitcoin for the multi-sig Bitcoin, that doesn't make sense to me because you've destroyed the multi-sig Bitcoin to create the space chain. So I'm unclear of whether or not this is really a solution, but I think you do have a good point that people start to think very speculatively when we have these fee bumps and sometimes this turns into real action. So when I hear about all of this, I think to myself, is any of this easier than just solving the scalability problems of Lightning? Because what I see as a scalability problem with Lightning is primarily around channel management and liquidity in those channels specifically. But I also see a lot of software, like I was mentioning Torque earlier, that just automates all of it. It, it watches the fees. It watches your channel balances. It, you know, any parameter you want to provide it, it gives you a graph-like style where you draw a box and you link that box to another box with a set of rules, with another set of conditions, and you link all those boxes together. And then it does automated channel management of Lightning for you just when you hit certain thresholds. It seems like a lot of the issues we talk about when it comes to scaling with Lightning are solvable with technology, other than the fact that it requires, in order to have a lot of inbound capacity, you have to commit a lot of SATs. That's obvious, but it also gives SATs something useful to do. So like, not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I guess my core question really is, would with setting up, you know, a modified Fediment or using a side change of a side chain of some kind, is it really any easier of a solution than just solving the scalability issues of Lightning? I think that Lightning is very difficult to scale and it does require on-chain transactions. And if a Lightning on-chain transaction only opens a channel between two parties, then that is only scaling by, I don't know, a factor of two or something. If a single on-chain transaction can open a Lightning channel with a hundred parties, a thousand parties, Okay, maybe that's much more scalable potentially, but I'm sure there are other trade-offs and we've discussed proposals to, to do things like that. I think that scaling a blockchain is an unsolved problem. Blockchains don't really scale. And so sidechain experiments like Liquid, like the proposed drive chain, they're highly experimental and often they result in another blockchain, which will eventually have scaling issues if it's successful. So this is really an unsolved problem. I don't know if it's an insurmountable problem because there is a potential that Bitcoin serves as such an effective store of value that you can basically use it for saving some high value transactions, a little bit of lightning, but then it appreciates value relative to fiat so reliably and so effectively that you essentially sell it and use fiat for all of these smaller, less important transactions that are necessary for daily life, but you wouldn't be willing to pay high fees on a blockchain for, and which is kind of where we are today in my view. Yeah, very much so. And it's manageable, but I don't know if it's like the the grand vision. You know, it's funny because Fiat Jeff's post here is really inspired by people seemingly, although I, I didn't really see this, but perhaps this was a thing on Bitcoin social media circles, but people were, quote, flocking to big lightning custodial providers like Walda Satoshi's and other because of on-chain fees, making it really expensive to rebalance and open channels and whatnot. That is definitely a story that happened during the Ordinal's high fee tobacco, but it's not the only story. I had a great experience with lightning. I used the crap out of lightning during the high fee time. I had lots of boosts coming in. 
I also was sending sats out over Lightning. I was sending sats to services. I was moving quite a bit of Bitcoin over Lightning during all this high fee stuff, and it never impacted me once. Now, I got lucky, and I didn't have to do my channel rebalancing until things had settled down. If I had done channel rebalancing during the peak of it, it would have been excruciatingly painful. But I planned accordingly, didn't strike me, and I was sending around sats like there was nothing going on on the primary chain. Like it just wasn't even happening. That was my experience during all of it, during the like the three weeks. The boosts were coming in. I was sending out sats. I was boosting. I never even had to get bit by any of the fees. So for me, Lightning worked great during the ordinal stuff. I don't have the experience that Fiat Jeff had. Right. And I think that's another observation I've heard, which is Bitcoin sort of needs to be prepared for periodic high fees because fee spikes seem to come in very intense moments and then they drop down to one sat per V-byte as the lowest acceptable rate and then they hang around there for a while, go up a little and down and then eventually they spike again. So this is not a solved problem. It's a work in progress. I, I kind of would argue it's working the way it should. I agree. I think this is part of the process. These fee spikes create conversations, create crazy ideas like a fediment multi-sig federation with a perpetual one-way peg into a space chain. I don't understand why, but we're talking about it. I also think the economics of it all work. Yes, we had high fees, but that also meant that all of this experimentation could only go on for so long. The congestion could only last for so long because they were paying fees in a hard asset, a limited hard asset that can only continue for so long. So like us long timers, we were sitting back going, yeah, this will settle down. Nobody's got a money printer for BRC20 right. tokens. Right, exactly. So it's like, you know, that uh, unless they just want to burn a hard asset for, you know, saving JPEGs to a blockchain, eventually they're going to run out. Eventually they're going to have to stop. And that's exactly what happens. The economic realities of the blockchain force them to slow down. But it, I think in the meantime, miners got paid finally after a year of a pounding. We had a bunch of companies come out and say they're going to adopt Lightning. It made me rethink my Lightning setup. And um, we, we are now having a bunch of great conversations that we weren't having beforehand because during a bear market, we get a little complicit in the uh, fee structure and we kind of think this is the way it's always going to be. But we'll look back at this time and think it was adorable that people were willing to burn a few sats to uh, inscribe something as silly as a JPEG. Remember to get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com or at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show's Matrix channel using a Matrix channel client like Element details in the show notes. We got some good boosts into the show this week. Magnolia Mayhem came in with a series of boosts, five boosts, no, four boosts, right? Something I can't remember. I, I, I summarized it because it was a lot of boosts. Four boosts of 5,000 sats. Thank you. That's what it was. And we got 20,000 sats in total. And he was frustrated because he made the mistake of firing up iHeartRadio and listening to a podcast called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. And this podcast was a little old. It was a rerun, which I always think it's funny when podcasts do that. We should do reruns. And it was an episode on cryptocurrency, and it particularly focused on Bitcoin. So Magnolia, you know, they perked up and they listened. But boy, were they let down. Um, not only were there just all kinds of factually wrong and negative views about Bitcoin in there, including the belief that it's just too unstable. <laughs> oh, and that you can't exchange it for fiat money and that it's just a Ponzi scheme, all of which are provably false. But no, no, they had to. Uh, although Mayhem got upset, they acknowledged that they might have been overreacting a little bit, but they wanted some opinions on the matter. They've given feedback to the podcast, but doubt they'll read it and would appreciate uh, the opportunity to 
have them read it. But what do you think? Let's uh, should we address the stability? And I mean, do we we don't need even need to really talk about the fact that you can obviously exchange it for fiat and the Ponzi scheme one. I hear idiots throw the Ponzi scheme one around all the time. Well, I love this because a Ponzi scheme is a specific structure where the scammer takes money from investors and uses money from investors to pay previous investors. Since there's no central party redistributing funds like this, it's not a Ponzi scheme. Are there tokens that are sort of like Ponzi schemes? Yeah, potentially in their structure, but there generally has to be a centralized party that is organizing the token and sort of arranging this transfer from insider investors to outsider investors and whatnot. I understand the frustration listening to critique like this, and I honestly suggest that you just turn it off because people are very good at talking very confidently about things that they don't understand, haven't bothered to read up on, and it's just not going to do you any good to listen to that unless you're in the mood to sort of like debunk it in your mind and you know, you're know you building up your arguments because you want to argue about this with someone or something like that. But generally speaking, I don't think it's worth your time. And there are a lot of really good podcasts None of which I believe come from iHeartRadio, which is an institution you have had problems with. Yeah, I've had all kinds of run-ins actually over the years. Weird advertising issues to them copying our our files and then re-hosting them and then not telling us what the download numbers are when they wanted to become like a podcast app. And of course, they're a massive force in the radio industry for evil. So there's that as well. I wanted to go back to what you said there. It's like, I hate that the answer is don't listen, but it really is don't listen. And one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is you can just stack and forget don't have to necessarily pay attention to what all the chattering class that doesn't even take the time to educate themselves on the subject is talking about because they're going to be the last people to get it. And if you're really trying to make a long-term investment here, you want to get in on that investment before all of the Luddites and the NPCs get their programming update that tell them this is a good idea, right? The whole way you kind of get it, you're getting a head start on them. So of course they don't see it yet. That's exactly where they should be because that's the type of people they are. But I have to agree with dad. It's taken me a long, long time to come to this, to really, truly internalize this idea. But the best thing is just not to listen because ultimately it doesn't matter. They don't move the needle at all. They would like you to think they matter because they want to matter in this discourse, but they don't matter. And you just have to just ignore it. They won't receive your feedback, especially on a podcast they recorded a while ago and now they're just replaying. It's already done. And also the fact that they're replaying it is indicative of the fact that they think it's a good product. They're not going to be interested in your criticism. And the reason that I like Bitcoin is it frees us from some of the uncertainty and the need to worry about politics and what's happening in the economy. We we think long term it's going to be okay and that Bitcoin will do what it's designed to do, which is to be a fixed supply asset with 21 million times 100 million units, because actually the real asset is the Satoshi. The Bitcoin is kind of a convenience because humans can't say the actual number of Satoshis because it's too large. It's issued and transacts with fixed rules, unlike our legacy banking and financial system. So you don't need to worry about it and you can do something else at the same time. Always feel free to share your frustrations because we feel them too. And I think a lot of people listening have that. Yeah, we're definitely there with you. That's for sure. I would add in there in a fiat system that is centrally managed by a bunch of bankers and somebody who's appointed by the executive office and just like this whole scheme, right? They are actually impacted by narrative and uh, political environments and all of this. So in that regard, 
the old system is more vulnerable to the political narrative. Bitcoin is not rules, not rulers. And it's just going to take us a while to adapt to that idea. But ultimately, we're going to be so much better off. Smart growth boosts in with 5,000 sats. He was listening to Bitcoin with Anthony Park, the estate planner. Get an attorney. The bank kept my stepdad's money in several accounts when he passed. He didn't have my mom listed on all of his accounts and didn't have a will. So she couldn't get them and the bank just kept it all. Go Florida. Then I'll see you in Texas. Ironic smiley face. I think that's an ironic smile. Could you imagine the tragedy of a family member? They pass, you know, you're where they have some money. That's like the only kind of thing that kind of helps the family a little bit and the bank keeps it. I think it's a good example of how, at least in the United States, the contents of your bank account are owned by the bank and then you have a claim against them. So if you do pass away and your significant other's name is not on that account, then the person with the claim against those assets has passed away. Now they just belong to the bank. I'm sure that there are potentially legal remedies, but those will involve lawyers and fees. So I think we should all follow Anthony Park's advice and put some sort of inheritance plan will in place, even if you hate it, just because, you know, there are a lot of traffic accidents and other tragedies in our daily life that we can't anticipate. It's not fun planning for the end, but I think we would feel much more reassured to have some plan in place in case something happened. True. How Was Right comes in with 2100 sats, responding to episode 76. I'll try to schedule for going to adopting Bitcoin in November. I'd love to meet you both. I've been listening to Kristen's Linux Action Show and TechSnap. Yes, do it, Hal. I would love that too. Let's go down there and uh, let's have some JB representation at adopting Bitcoin. Show them that the Linux community gets it. Let's do it. So how long has Hal been listening? Well, I mean, Linux Action Show like started in 2008. And, you know, went to probably like 2015, maybe 2014, somewhere 16, somewhere in that range. It's been a long time now. So uh, at least one of my kids, you know, one lifetime of my kids, at least. (laughs) That's how I measure things. Well, we'd love to see you at Adopting Bitcoin. It would be very fun to meet. And if you show up to Adopting Bitcoin and have boosted into the pod, then I will buy you a beer. Yeah, it's like we already know you. If yeah, if we meet you in person, tell us your booster name because you're probably not going to introduce yourself as Hal was right. You'll be like, I'm so and so. I boosted as Hal is right, and they'll be like, Hal. You know, then we'll recognize. So if you spend several hundred dollars to go to El Salvador and you find me and you boosted in, you get a free beer. Hey, nice deal. Chad Flenderman boosts in 1100 sats. He was listening to Going Full Editorial. Nice episode this week. I'll say this about Bitcoin Dad Pod. I've been listening from the start. I came for the Bitcoin learning, but stayed for the econ chit chat. Well, thank you so much, Chad. I get that. You know, I mean, that, like I've said before on the pod, that's what really got me back into Bitcoin in a big way was the economic side of it. I had, I saw the technology side. I was like, that's good stuff. Like that. Neat innovation there. Then once I really understood the economic side a bit more, I also kind of understood some of the incentives at work a bit more as well, which also helped. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with 4,444 sats. Politics are fun as a random thing here and there, but I definitely tune in for your collation of Bitcoin news. I dislike trying to do this filtering myself and making technical topics accessible for dummies like me. Appreciate your tireless work. Well, mere mortals, we appreciate that you boost in on the regs and we always like hearing from you. And in China, that would have been an unlucky boost because the number four is which sounds like and is death. 
Oh. So that was a quadruple death boost. Well, in Aussie, it means shooting stars, and shooting stars are good luck. I just made that up. I just totally made that up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the boost. And maybe that was a suggestion to not go full editorial. I had that suspicion myself. Roderick Rudolph, boosts in a thousand sats. Love the content. Keep up the good work, Dad. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And Baffo sent in 10,000 sats via Albi. Baffo, try a new boost method. Thank you, Baffo. Thank you, Baffo. Great to hear from you. Nice boost. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. You can do what Baffo did and go get Albi at getalbi.com. And then you can boost from your web browser like podcastindex.org or using Podverse. There's lots of apps that are actually building in Albi support. Or try out Podverse, Fountain, maybe Castomatic. See what they've been up to. Both Podverse and Fountain just issued updates. The Podverse app just got a lot better on Android. And Fountain is working on some brand new features, including live stream support. You can find all the new podcast apps at newpodcastapps.com. Then you top them off with some sats and you boost in. And then we read your message on a future show. Uh, We have a cutoff, though, of 1,000 sats just to kind of keep it brief. But we do see everything below that. And there's a collection of folks out there that just stream while they listen. We greatly appreciate that. And there's folks like Bob that are using Oak to send in reoccurring boosts as well. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, May 19th. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Hey, it's me. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time. 